I am a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien's books, The Lord of the Rings. And so naturally, I was elated when some years ago I learned that Peter Jackson was making a trilogy of movies. I was so excited. But at the same time, I was really disappointed when I learned that the three movies will be separated by a whole year. You see, the first movie came out, then a year later that The Two Towers came out, and a year later that, that The Return of the King came out. My goodness. On the one hand, one understands it's, the book is such an epic that you can't reduce it down to one single movie without missing and messing up everything that's great about it. So you understand why you had to break it up into three parts. But goodness, a whole year in between them? Um, well, I mentioned that because uh, what we read today, starting with chapter 10, verse 1, is an epic, really, that goes all the way to chapter 11, verse 18. And we are also breaking it up into three parts. Uh, there is so much that is happening and so many things that are so important that we really ought not to rush through them. But you will be glad to know that you will not have to wait a year in between the three uh, parts of the sermon series. It'll just take us three weeks to go through this epic uh, story. And today, we look at the events that lead us up to the meeting between Cornelius and Peter. And as we see how God dealt with these two men, we realize that God is also instructing us to live rightly today. And so we are focusing our attention, first of all, on this precious truth that God loves the nations. God loves the nations. And so we read that at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Caesarea is about 40 miles north of Joppa. Today it's called Jaffa, near Tel Aviv. And in those days, it was a very important city because Caesarea was named after Augustus Caesar, and it was where the Romans had established the center of administration for the whole region of Judea. And befitting a city of such importance, Caesarea had a Roman cohort, or sometimes called a regiment. Uh, this is uh, 1,000 infantrymen. And over the cohort, there were 10 centurions, each in command of 100 men. And Cornelius was one such centurion, a commander of an important uh, cohort in an important city. That is to say, he was a man of stature. Uh, more importantly, he was a devout man. Now think about that for a minute. This Italian commander, a part of the conquering Roman military, this Italian commander had come to love both the God and the people of the conquered nation, Israel. And you wonder what happened. And it seems clear that 
while many people were bewitched by Rome's power and wealth and the advantages, Cornelius was not bewitched by the earthly master that he served because he saw in the God of Israel that something that neither the empire nor its many gods could never be or give him. And so we read that Cornelius, he feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the peoples, and prayed continually to God. Now you realize that this is actually a description of covenant faithfulness in the Old Testament language. Because in the Old Testament, to fear God, to give alms to the poor, and to pray continually, these are the very things that describe someone who walks in, faith, in covenant faithfulness after God. Or to put it slightly differently, he feared God, meaning and last month we read a book about the fear of God, and it was such a helpful book, wasn't it? In that it helps us to understand an important aspect of fearing God is loving God. And so Cornelius is a God-fearer, meaning he loved God. And he gave alms generously to people. He loved his neighbors. Now, what is that? Loving God on the one hand and loving his neighbors. This is the summary of the whole law, isn't it? And he is a man who prayed continually and constantly. And reading this, some people draw a wrong lesson from this. And they say that Cornelius' good works, his law-keeping, his giving of the alms, his prayers, earned God's favor. Uh, that is actually a very wrong lesson to draw from this lesson. And because if you remember, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. John tells us we love God because God first loved us. Always, always God loves first and that love stirs our love for him. And that is true in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. Life of covenant faithfulness was always based on God's grace. That is to say, the manner in which Cornelius lived, his covenant faithfulness, was his response to God's electing love. His good works did not cause God's love or favor. God's love and favor produced in him this life of faithfulness. And that is how we hear the angel's words to him. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, that does not mean that God's favor or grace is a result of his good works. Rather, this is the blessed assurance of God's covenant people to know that God sees and remembers all our labors of love and faith. And that is what the angel is telling Cornelius. And it's important to recognize that Cornelius' faith fulfills God's Old Testament promises. 
for example, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, this is what the Lord God says to the Messiah to come. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You see, it was God's deep yearning, his great desire to call the nations to himself so that those who are without God and without hope in this world might come to the God of Israel and find that that he is their God too. And really here with Cornelius, God is beginning to fulfill his promises and he is beginning the age of world missions. God loves the nations. Secondly, God uses people. God uses people. Notice what the angel said to Cornelius. He, uh, the angel commands, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now that's really strange because think about this. God took the trouble of sending an angel to Cornelius. So why not let the angel minister to Cornelius? Actually, we saw this before too, haven't we? When Saul, when he was on the way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, he met the risen Lord in his glory. And encountering the Lord, Saul was left without a sight. But then what does the Lord do? The Lord who opened the eyes of the blind while he was on earth, the Lord who raised the dead while he was on earth, he doesn't heal Saul himself. Rather, the Lord sends Ananias. God uses people. And it seems the Lord does not do anything himself directly if he can possibly delegate the task to his servants. God uses people. And this is instructive. You notice how both Cornelius and Peter are prayers, people who pray constantly. And I think it's important for us to think about in the context of prayer, the fact that God uses people. Because you and I, as Christians, we rightly understand the importance of prayer, don't we? We know that nothing can ever be done without God's help and blessings. And there is the most important thing ever is to seek God's help. But while our spiritual service begins with prayer, it does not end with prayer. God uses people to do his work. In other words, as Christians, when we pray to God, let your will be done, we pray rightly when we offer up to God not only our words, but also our strength, our hands and our feet, our time and our resources. So as we pray, let your will be done, we also pray, Lord, I am your servant. Teach me how to serve you. Lord, I am your servant. How may I fulfill 
your will and your desire. And that is why this angel, who was no doubt very competent to minister to Cornelius and reveal to Cornelius all the mysteries of God's kingdom, he tells Cornelius, send for Peter. And that also tells us something else too. God has ordained the ministry of word to draw people to Christ. The angel who appeared to Cornelius does not speak to Cornelius about the Lord Jesus crucified and risen again. Rather, it's going to be Peter's preaching, his witness and testimony to the life, suffering, death, and the resurrection of Christ. That will be the means of Cornelius' salvation. Now we remember Romans chapter 10, don't we? How Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? God has appointed the ministry of the word as the means of drawing people into God's kingdom. It's the preaching of feeble and sinful men. It's mind-boggling that the words spoken by weak and frail men, sinful people, that God has appointed words of such people to be the instrument and the means of salvation and drawing people into his kingdom. And that tells us something very important. We must never despise the ministry of the word. And notice how Cornelius responded when the angel commands him, send for Peter. He immediately obeyed. And as we will read on in the, in the next two weeks, Cornelius shows incredible eagerness and willingness to learn from God. And in that way, how Cornelius responds to the message of the angel is a model for us. You and I must never despise the ministry of God's word, but rather be eager and willing and be teachable. And that brings us to the third and the last point. God converts Peter. Now you may well know that Acts chapter 10, this is uh, known, understandably known as the story of Cornelius' conversion. But it's as much about Peter's conversion as well. Now, I do not mean Peter's conversion to Christ, but rather that God had to profoundly, completely change Peter from inside out. And so this story is very much about Peter's conversion. And so see how Peter, he sees a vision just as Cornelius' three messengers were arriving. 
And Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, and in it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, "Rise, Peter, kill and eat." But Peter said, "By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean." It strikes me that you should never become uh, be known as the person who always says no to the Lord. <laughs> you remember when Jesus spoke to his disciples about the suffering that he was about to face. Peter takes him aside and says, "By no means, not going to happen." And let me just tell you that whenever the Lord says something, it's never a good idea to say to God, "I don't think so." But that's what Peter does here. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now there is a background to this, and the background is this: You remember how God in Genesis created all things, and with everything He created, He pronounced a judgment and verdict upon them. He said, "Good, good, good." Everything God created. Reflect God's design, His wisdom, His holiness, and goodness. So there is nothing that God created that is not good. However, as we continue to read through the Old Testament, we see that when God sets His people apart from Himself and He separates them from the rest of mankind and He forms a covenant community, He teaches them to distinguish between clean things. And unclean things, and so you remember in Noah's ark, there were clean animals and unclean animals. As God separated Noah and his household and formed of them His covenant people, and set them apart from the rest of mankind, inside the ark, there was a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Clean animals and unclean animals, and actually that distinction disappears as soon as Noah steps out of the ark. But that distinction reappears once again at the time of Exodus, as God constituted His redeemed people as a kingdom of priests. They could only eat clean animals. Now, of course, the dietary laws of the Old Testament Israel—it was actually a part of the larger holiness law, in which God instructed His people to consider His word and command whether they ate food, whether they dressed, or how they worked, how they rested. They were supposed to learn from His word what is right. And wrong. Now there is no amount of argument that any one of us can say and make to unbelievers to ever convince them that this is in any way attractive or beautiful, because this world it thrives on determining what is right and wrong on the basis of what feels good, what is convenient, what is popular. But God's people need no convincing to understand that the reason, the beauty, and the properness 
of learning everything from God so that we don't determine what is right and wrong on the basis of how popular or how acceptable it is to the world, but because God commands it. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's the lesson that God was teaching through the holiness commands. So whether you were eating food, whether you were washing your utensils, uh, washing your clothes, what kind of work and when and where you did, in every way possible, you were supposed to consult the word of the Lord and understand and ask what would please God, what would glorify God, what is right in His eyes, and what is wrong in His eyes. Eyes. So that's the basis of holiness law in the Old Testament, including uh, the, the permission to eat what is clean and, and how they were forbidden from eating the unclean animals. But sadly, over time, the intention was forgotten and only the practice remained. And what, see, what Peter sees here, he sees this large sheet uh, being lowered from heaven that was filled with all sorts of unclean creatures that would fill any Orthodox Jew with a sense of disgust. And Peter simply could not do it. By no means, Lord. I don't think so. But then the Lord says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times and we see here Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. You said this was so against the grain of his inner being, against what he had grown up assuming and taking for granted, what he had always thought was right. It was such a powerful demand upon Peter to think differently that Peter is completely lost. He can make heads or tails out of it. But just then, Cornelius' messengers came, and the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Here, the phrase without hesitation can also be translated without making distinction. You see, Peter, as with all the Jewish people, and by the way, I need to say this. Um, there is a way in which we study the New Testament that necessarily point out the failures of the Jewish people. But the sins that they are uh, being accused of and indeed are guilty of, it's a sin that is common to all mankind. It's not just the Jewish people who are guilty of sins of prejudice and racism. Every culture on earth is guilty of that. So let this uh, be in no way or shape or form be the rationale or justification for the kind of anti-Semitism that we sometimes see around us. What the Jews are guilty of, all of us, all of our cultures, all of our races are guilty of. Having said that, you understand that the Jewish people, having raised in the culture with the mindset of thinking that the Jews were clean and the Gentiles were unclean, 
Peter had his whole life treated the Gentiles as unworthy, unclean, because in those days, a self-respecting Jew could not even enter the house of a Gentile or sit down at the same table with him. But it was a deeply prejudicial way of reading the Old Testament because the Jews ignored every passage about God's desire to redeem the nations. And so they began to think that being the chosen people meant that they were the choice people. The two are not the same. You see, Israel was not the chosen people because they were the choice people. In fact, when when the Lord actually addresses that issue, he often makes the point that he chose the smallest and the least of the nations to show them favor. You see, Peter needed a change of heart. And God sent Peter these visions to correct him and to prepare him to bring the gospel to Cornelius and to enter his home and have fellowship with him. Now, that is where we must end today. But I do want to point out one thing, one lesson that we ought to take to heart. And it is this. The Lord says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see, the Lord's gentle rebuke to Peter was really about Peter's inability to see the power of Christ's blood to cleanse everyone who believes. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this is a a very profound challenge to us because each and every one of us, we are by nature legalistic each and every one of us. We, left to ourselves, we love to judge people. And even as Christians, we carry that that deadly remnant in our hearts. We, don't we do this? We judge other believers. And we are so quick to notice the ways that they are weak and immature and they fail. And we, we pass judgment on them and say they show insufficient qualification to be Christians. What God has made clean, do not call common. Maybe it's slightly better, but this is just as wrong. Sometimes we judge ourselves as vile sinners. And having judged ourselves as vile sinners, we know that we are undeserving of grace, and therefore we conclude that Since we are undeserving of grace, we are therefore dispossessed of grace. I know you do that because that's a temptation that is ever present in my ears and my heart too. I think of all the moments that I experience during the week, I am most sane 
when I am sun, uh, here Sunday morning, when I am confessing my sins to the Lord, because it's then all the pretenses, all the hypocrisy falls off, and I realize what a vile sinner I am. And then there is a temptation in our ears that says, you are vile, you are undeserving of grace, therefore you have been dispossessed of grace. Loved ones, hear this. What God has made clean, do not call common. Undeserving we may be, but Jesus has made us clean. He lived the righteous life that we may offer up to God with that borrowed righteousness, everything that God demands of us. And he suffered and died so that our guilt may be dealt with before the holy and righteous God. And he rose from the dead, that being united with Jesus by faith, we may be declared innocent, righteous, and clean. So hear this, loved ones. You are forgiven. Yes, every day we hear the condemnation that says, you are vile, you are undeserving, and therefore God is done with you. But God has made you clean. Don't forget that. And it's not so much that you must learn to forgive yourself, but rather it's about believing that God has forgiven you. So do you believe this? Yes, you and I, we are undeserving. But Jesus has made you clean. And if Jesus has made you clean, would you then say to him, I don't think so, Lord. By no means. Wouldn't you rather say with me, yes, Lord, thank you. I trust you and I believe you. And I know that I am forgiven. And let me praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we humbly offer up to you our thanks and praise. For you are so full of grace that even when we stumble and even when we fail, that we can never outlive your grace and outrun your love towards us. And so I pray, O oh God, that your comfort and your grace would so uh, touch your people this morning here, that they would find their sins forgiven, healed, and made righteous before you. And may we all learn to say thank you for your amazing grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.